I don't think that this matter in the church that's hurting people so much can be fixed by the church authorities alone. So who do you think should be involved? Oh, in I, I think I'm all for the plans and the ways of behaving that involve professional lay people, that involve people who are pastorally involved who are not priests. You know, the people who didn't cause the clerical child sex abuse crisis are probably more in a position to do something about it. It seems to me that Francis is talking about a synodal church, a church that walks together and thinks together. If bishops and priests have been the problem, they can't be the solution alone. The faith, the love, the support, the insight, the wisdom, the learning of lay people and of victims, survivors, they need to be part of this healing if anything is really going to come of it. Now, how you get all that working together locally is, is, is a different thing. I work a little bit at the Center for the Protection of Minors in the University, where Hans Zollner, whose name is well known, is the president of that. There is an emphasis on procedures that will ensure safe environments for children and vulnerable adults. But there's also an emphasis on something more, creating a different church, a different theology, a set of circumstances in which this can't easily happen again. And I'm at the end of trying to think through how theology could be done differently. You remember years ago with liberation theology, those who were the proponents of it said it begins with a foot trip, not a head trip, that you go to the people who are suffering on the edges, and from their perspective, you relook at the traditional doctrines of theology, God, Christ, grace, church, etc. Well, I think, and I've already written an article on this, we have to look at the traditional doctrines, but from having had long conversations and spent time with people who have suffered abuse in the church, what does the notion of salvation mean to somebody who in the community of salvation experienced the opposite? You can't be talking about salvation in the same way as you did before. And you can't be saying things even like, well, Jesus came to save us from our sins and you'll be all right because that's what he did. They didn't sin in this area. They were sinned against. So if they are saved in the community of salvation, they're more in solidarity with Jesus who's in solidarity with them, saving others, than being saved. And when you think about other areas in the church, what is a priest? That needs to be fundamentally rethought. What is the church? Not just the hierarchical institution, but the whole living, moving people of God. It would be very interesting to stand for 50 years in the company of many people who have suffered this way in the church and to re-elaborate an understanding of the theological doctrines that would prove life-giving for them. That's the kind of thing I'm interested in. Yeah, because it strikes me as you're speaking there, particularly moving to, you know, soteriology, the theory of salvation. It's where you see powerlessness most manifest when Jesus can do nothing on the cross, apparently. The most awful stripping down of humanity, torture, all of that. And that powerlessness is surely something that people who have suffered abuse, which goes to the core of their humanity, that because even when they went to report it, people didn't believe them. Oh, they had yes. nowhere to go. They, they really would, I think, have something so deep to say to that experience and to speak to power. That's why I don't like the idea that in Rome they'll figure it out or that a bishop's conference will figure it out or that a provincial on his own will figure it out. I think that's a kind of male response in some ways too, you know. It's easier to say we'll get procedures right than to sit with people 
and hear all about the pain first of all and then work towards a different kind of understanding. Jesus shows exactly how to use power in powerlessness. I mean, everybody who has powerful position, they kind of enjoy the trappings that go with that and the influence it gives them over other people. It seems to me also too, you know, we learned in school and many people did who grew up in the church that it says it in the scriptures and it's true that Jesus came to save us from our sins. We messed up. He came to rescue us and went through terrible things and it was really great and all that. But he also came to be in solidarity with human beings who suffer, who are the victims of sin, who are pushed to the edges and pushed to the edges of of their own life and being because they have been treated so badly by other people. They haven't sinned at all in all these respects, but Jesus came to be with them too as innocent sufferers. He is an innocent sufferer with the innocent sufferers. That means that the incarnation and God becoming human is about solidarity with those whom history has treated so badly, as well as it is about saving people from sin. There is a nice statement uh, in the theological tradition about Jesus who alone saves, never saves alone. That the way he works is that with the church, the community of salvation, good men, good women, they are involved with him in the saving of the world. He's in solidarity with them and them with him. You have to think all these notions differently. People get annoyed with me when I take the emphasis off him coming to save us. But not every person needed saving in every area in the same way. Clearly, in the case of abuse, there's the sinner and the sinned against. And there's also the notion of what sin is. I mean, we've had a very narrow understanding of it's something I do. I mean, there's collective sin. I mean, we're ruining the planet and it's very hard for one person to be accused of that sin. There are wars and primal revenge instincts. There's a more collective nature to sin that I don't think we've looked at and that maybe very much in this child sexual abuse area because it's across the board. It's not just in church, it's in families and it's a worldwide phenomenon that that, you know, it becomes an evil and sin become a different thing to understand. Well, I mean, I can remember, I don't, it's funny, you know, people like to talk about the church a lot in public, but I can think of other big institutions or entities in other countries that have been in the media because they have there has been access to children in them. And when uh, abuse has been discovered, there has been the same coming together, refusal to speak, the same pattern of behavior. In some ways, that's sociology. An institution seeks to self-protect. And if influential people in the institution are the ones who have done the wrong things, but they're also the ones that are giving prominence to the institution, in some cases making money for it and so on. I'm thinking coaches and very big, you know, sports coaches and so on. They're going to be protected because they're going to bring down the institution if they're pursued. So the institution has all sorts of ways of, in the church it used to be said, we don't want to scandalize the faithful. I think that has to be questioned. But um, it seems to me that sin is a webbed thing. Uh, If I had children, I would be always concerned about who were their companions. And I would, like my parents did when we were young, say, bring everybody home. Because it's very interesting to see the environment in which people are raised and influenced and all that. It's easier to be good if the people around you are good. But if the people around you are not, you'll be sucked into an insidious web which has mechanisms and characteristics that uh, enable evil to coagulate 
and big structures get formed. The isms, I think, racism, sexism, clericalism, how do they flourish? Not just because individuals are racist or sexist, but something more happens. It's a kind of an irrationality that grows. And sin is like that. It's a web. It's a tissue. And its causes are very difficult to unravel. Lots of people still don't see the connection between clericalism and the misuse of power that goes on, for example, in the case of the abuse of a vulnerable person. But it seems to me that's one to be teased out. Sin is also attitudinal. Every joke that you hear that is inappropriately oriented against a particular group in society, women, the poor, foreigners, that indicates to you that there is a tissue of prejudice there, which will mean that people in that group suffer excluding behaviours towards them that others simply don't. There are always ins and outs. Sin is a much more complex thing than I gossiped about the neighbour. Humanly, we're webbed. I Also, I always think, I teach the theology of grace, and you know there's a famous text of Paul where sin abounded, grace abounded more. Well, if that's really true, if God is most powerful where we have been most awful then we must look there also for the webbed character of grace. I say goodness is an infection. Put me with good people and my better self will probably come out, if only because I won't want them to see how awful I really am. You could say sin is fragmentation. It drives people apart. It puts them at each other's throats. And grace is communion, friendship, togetherness.